Lord, uh, anything that is done merely in the power of the flesh, not only will it not communicate your truth, it, it will not please you. Those who live according to the flesh cannot please God, it says in the scriptures. So, Lord, we pray for a filling, infilling of the Holy Spirit, that with the same power that you spoke life into Lazarus, you would speak life into our hearts to receive the preaching of the message, and that you would speak life into the words themselves. And, Lord, we will be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory, for it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if somebody came in and had a picture they wanted to put up here uh, at the front around the altar, I won't make you get up and do it because that would be embarrassing for you. But just raise your hand if you brought a picture that you wanted around the altar this morning of someone you love. If you do, I'll, I'll run over and get it. All right. I'm taking that as a no. We're all good. And I would also ask you to do this, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, just let's leave, the, uh, let's leave the pictures of the saints around the altar this morning all the way through the, uh, the second service. And then uh, next Sunday, you can come pick them up or you can come back, uh, you know, after the second service and pick them up if you want to. But I just would love for people to see uh, the saints that have gone before us because that's what we're here for on this All Saints Sunday. We want to remember and celebrate their victory they have in Christ and what they have passed down to us. But as we think about these people, one of the things, you know, one of the, uh, one of the two requirements that you have to have to be a saint uh, is, first of all, you have to have been a follower of Jesus Christ. But the second way we uh, commemorate you on all saints is you have to be dead. And so that's the second thing. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I, I have had enough of death this year. I am tired of death this year. Uh, maybe like I've never been before. I've just seen the senseless waste of death too much since last we gathered around this altar for the Feast of All Saints. In our own family, we have a, a young man, a friend who's connected to our family. We watched him um, have his life drained away at age 28 by cancer. It's just, it's just wrong. It's ontologically wrong. It's just cosmically wrong. There's another friend, really more of an acquaintance, but right this very minute, uh, she's close friends to friends of ours, and so we feel their grief with her, uh, with them. Uh, right now, she thought she had pulled a muscle in her back. This was about two weeks ago. She thought she'd pulled a muscle in her back, so she went in and have it looked at. It turns out that she has stage four metastatic cancer, and she has two weeks to live. Uh, in our own church community this summer, we had a family experience the loss of a loved one to suicide. Um, we lost Fielding Combs this summer. Fielding's first words to me were, you sure do preach a long time. <laughs> I went back now and I said, well, Fielding sermonettes tend to make Christianettes, and we'll have none of that here. <laughs> Some of us have lost parents since the last time we gathered for the Feast of All Saints. And I don't care how old you are, when you lose a parent, you're an orphan. And on top of that, our hearts are wrung out with sorrow for our brothers and sisters whom we have never met, but who have lost their lives as martyrs this past year at the hands of ISIS and Islamic extremism. And I'm just sick and tired of death. 
in light of this, I, I think that I'm actually more of an Eastern Christian than a Western Christian. In the Christian West, we tend to emphasize that Jesus came to save us from our sins, save us from our sins, and of course, he did. But in the Christian East, the emphasis is that Jesus came to save us from death. Jesus came to save us from death. The great victory anthem of the Eastern Orthodox Church is, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. You see... Death is just cosmically wrong. It wrenches the whole universe out of joint. And for Christians and non-Christians alike, when it comes to someone you love or when, brothers and sisters, and it will, when it comes to you personally, platitudes like, well, death is just a natural point of, a natural part of life are worse than useless. Don't pat me on my hand when I'm laying there dying and say, well, Ben, you know, death is just a natural part of life. It seems so unnatural. I, oh, yeah, and more than that, if, um, if, you ever, if you ever feel like, well, I wonder if my pastor ever would rebuke me. All you have to do is say this phrase, and I will. <laughs> well, you know, Father Ben, death is the ultimate healing. No, it's not. Death is the last enemy, according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death is the last enemy. Death is an enemy. It is not healing. Resurrection is the ultimate healing. But death is a defeated enemy. And the Bible says that death is the final enemy and it is being crushed into nothingness by the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. Jesus is trampling down death by death. Isaiah says, we heard it this morning, that God is going to swallow up death forever. And that word is very important because the, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew cognate and the, and the Canaanite word for mouth and for death are really the same word, mot, or met. And, and so when and God says, you think you got a big mouth, death? I'm going to swallow you up forever. The wrongness of death and its remedy are the themes of all three readings that we had from the scriptures this morning. And it is particularly poignant in the gospel text from John's gospel. That entire narrative is awash in the emotions and the turmoil, and it's very realistic, the emotions and the turmoils that, that, that are unleashed by death. And we pick up that story in John 11, halfway through the account. The account is about a family from the village of Bethany, which is just like a, a few minutes walk outside of Jerusalem. And that family had a special place in Jesus' heart. We know because we could go back to verse 5 and read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And in verse 3, Jesus has received the message from his sisters, or from the, from the sisters of Lazarus, that their brother, Jesus' friend, is sick. The sisters have sent word with the expectation, obviously, that Jesus is going to come and heal him. But that is not what happens in this passage. Instead, Jesus intentionally remains where he is and waits until Lazarus is dead before he travels to Bethany. And that's where the story that we heard picks up in verse 32 in John chapter 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw, listen to what happened. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, now you need to hear how she says this. What has just happened to her? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Lord, if you had only been here. This is, friends, this is an accusation. This is an indictment. It is a cry against the wrongness of death. And Jesus, too, whom Mary calls Lord, and apparent, his apparent lack of willingness to do anything about it. And if we are being perfectly honest, if you have ever prayed at the bedside of a dying loved one and cried out, Jesus, the one you love is sick, and then watch death take its prey, you know what that feeling is like. Jesus, if you had just showed up, this would not have happened. Now, you might think the reason Jesus didn't rush down to Bethany to save Lazarus from death was so that he could wait around and really show them the glory of God by raising Lazarus from the dead. And you would be right, probably. But there is another, and this is where I want us to look. There is another subtler reason buried right here in the very next verse for Jesus' delay. Listen to what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus waits for Lazarus to die because he is determined to fully share, to fully enter into the calamity, the grief that death brings into every human life. The God who has come to us in Jesus Christ refuses to remain distant and aloof from our human suffering. That's the incarnation, folks. We don't serve, we don't believe in a docetic Jesus. You know, the Franco Zaffarelli uh, Jesus of Nazareth miniseries, it came out in the 70s. I think it was 1979. I watched that. Do you know that he never blinks even once in the entire miniseries? I mean, seriously, the director, Zaffarelli, I think, has said, okay, cut. We can't have you blinking here. In other words, Words, they, he painted Jesus as this inhuman figure that kind of, kind of just uh, uh, wafts through, uh, floats through human existence, who, who never looks like, never looks like, I don't know, like you ever had to go to the bathroom or anything like that. <laughs> Folks, that's doceticism. That's a heresy. Jesus is fully human. Yes, he's fully God, and he is fully human, and our incarnate God refuses to remain untouched. We, we don't have a God that we can ever say to, you don't know what it's like, because he knows what it's like. He refuses to remain unmoved by human suffering. In fact, he refuses to ma- remain detached. Instead, he fully enters into every aspect of human existence except sin, sharing our sin with us. And so he knows God himself has put on human flesh in Jesus Christ, and he has willingly embraced the sea-billowing sorrow of grief. Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha so much that he would not avoid the stabbing pain of loss, but he fully entered into their grief. And on all saints, we remember that Jesus was, because Jesus has done this, because Jesus has wept at the graveside of a friend, he has made all human grief holy. Your grief is something that you share with your Savior. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief.
the very one who is the resurrection and the life, embraced grief and wept beside the tomb of a friend. And so far removed from, uh, so far from being unmoved by Mary and Martha's loss, by their suffering, Jesus has a passionate reaction to all that is going on. Unfortunately, it really doesn't come through in the text in the English Standard Version. Listen to what it says again. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Well, that really doesn't carry the impact of the Greek there. And the reason it doesn't come through is that this is a confusing passage for translators. It's confusing because the Greek text suggests that Jesus' main emotion was not merely sorrow in the face of death, but deep anger. The word conservatively translated as deeply moved in his spirit usually refers to a reaction of anger and literally would be translated, literally he translated, he snorted like a horse. So it would not be incorrect to render this passage when Jesus saw her wailing with grief and the Jews who had come with her also wailing, he snorted and shook with anger and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, his anger in this moment does beg the question, what, with whom or with what is Jesus angry? I think that he is angry at death, the ultimate enemy of our race. He is furious with the power of death and and its devastating reign of hopelessness. This is what B.B. Warfield said of this passage, a great Princeton theologian of the last century. He said, the spectacle of the distress of Mary... And her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. In Mary's grief, he contemplates the general misery of the whole human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed it is presented throughout the whole narrative, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. So when we read Jesus wept, brothers and sisters, the hot tears on Jesus' face are those of very human grief and sorrow, but they're not only tears of grief and sorrow. They are more than that. They are tears of fury. Have you ever been so angry that it made you cry? In my mind's eye, I see Jesus trembling with almighty God's anger at the forces that have wounded his beloved creation throughout the ages. All the powers that have stripped us of God's gifts of peace and hope and joy. And through his gritted teeth, I hear the lion of the tribe of Judah say this. Take Away the stone. He stands before the gaping maw of death, and with the word of his mouth, he snatches out death's prey. Lazarus, you come out. And in the face of 
ultimate human loss and hopelessness. God's wrath against the grave burns and Jesus and in Jesus and in word and deed he says to the powers of death and hell, I have had enough of you. Amen. I've had enough of it too. And if you've had enough of death this year, let me tell you what. Brothers and sisters, it is nothing compared to the way God feels about it. And in the presence of the one who is life itself, death has to give way. And in the presence of of the one who is resurrection itself, hope rises from the ashes. And the man who was dead came out walking, bound hand and feet. But here's even more amazing good news. As wonderful and as powerful as Jesus' raising of Lazarus is, it is only, listen, this, you know, uh, on, on this mountain of the Lord, the Lord himself will prepare a great feast for all nations. We heard that this morning. This is just an appetizer to the great feast that God wants to prepare. Jesus stood at the door of death and spoke to bring forth new life. And the same voice that spoke then will speak again, and we know what it will say. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said to me, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The voice from the throne said, listen, the voice from the throne says, there will be no more mourning or crying. Well, that voice knows what it is like to lose a loved one to death. He knows grief, and he knows what it is like to weep at the grave of a friend, and I think it gave him utmost joy to reveal to John there will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things are passing away. See, he is making everything new. Brothers and sisters, all the failures and hurts of this world will be gone. And I, th- I think about that in the sense of, wow, all the bad things that I've experienced, that's going to pass away, or all the bad things I read about in the, in the world are going to pass away. I want you to listen to, to it in a different way. The former things have passed away. See, I'm making everything new. Hear this. Oh, this is such comfort. All of the harm I have done. All the pain that I have created in someone else's life. All the wrong things I ever did will be no more. He will make everything new. 
You will never, have, you will never carry that again. And this promise is so sure, so bursting with hope, so poignantly longed for that we could almost touch it right now. It's going to happen in a couple of ways. We're going to go to the prayers of the people in a little bit, and we're going to say, we, uh, Jesus will lead us in a prayer, and part of that prayer says, we'll, and we pray for those who have died in Christ, and then there's going to be silence, and you can just lift up that, the name of that saint that has gone before you that you love and miss, and in that time, just mention their name once again in front of God and in front of God's church. So we'll, we'll be very close to them in that moment. But in particular, this altar is a thin place this morning. The veil between heaven and earth is stretched so thin, we can almost hear those words around this altar. See, he is making everything new. Right now, our brothers and sisters who have died in Christ are waiting for us and waiting with us for the fulfillment of the words we heard in Revelation 21. As they gather around the altar in heaven, and oh yes, Revelation 6, 9 tells us there's an altar in heaven. And as we gather around this table this morning, we are one family again, and we are separated only by the very narrow stream of death. And with us at this table this morning, with the veil between heaven and earth stretched so thin, and with their faces here around the altar, they say to us, it's not much longer now. It's not much longer now. Don't give up. Oh, don't give up, Christian. Be faithful to the end. He said it, behold, I'm coming soon. And to that, all we can say this morning is, amen. Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.